My assignment is to ask the question, what is creation, and seek to answer it. So in my first lecture, I'm going to ask that question. Uh, I'll define creation. Then we're going to go to our confession, and I'll just do, deal with the first two clauses there, what I call the inception of creation and the ground. And when we get there, I'll show you that. And then the next lecture will be on the goal of creation. And then tomorrow, I'll deal with God, creatures, and interpreting scripture, or God, creation, and interpreting scripture. And then, um, then the last one, is there change in God given creation, which I think is a very important uh, question. So with that, what is creation? Usually, if you ask Christians what is creation, they'll, they'll point to some beautiful thing that they've seen. Um, the Grand Canyon is an obvious one, something out there in you know, nature. But theologians of the Christian tradition, however, give a more theocentric answer to that question, what is creation? They're going to say, it's an act of God. It is God producing, God effecting that which was not and bringing things into being. Here's uh, Hermann Bavink. Creation is that act of God through which, by his sovereign will, he brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being. He brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being. Now, that's, that's a good definition on the way here, I was, this is what I was referring to, to, to the two, the doctor and the hopefully one day doctor. How do you bring non-being into being? Is non-being a thing? There seems to be like a from to in this definition. So whatever it means, we know Bob Inc. well enough. He holds to creation ex nihilo. There was no thing that God operated upon to bring into being. There was nothing but God. Bavink begins his definition in a very theocentric manner. Creation is an act of God accomplished by virtue of his sovereign will. We're going to get to this, kind of parsing this out a little more. Uh, Creation is not absolutely necessary. It is necessary, contingent on the pleasure of God. It pleased God. We'll deal with that statement soon. Bavink's uh, uh, definition, I think, is very important, for it clearly upholds a creator-creature distinction. Uh, If that's all you get from the conference, Chuck and I win, and so do you. Creator-creature distinction. In one sense, what's creation? Not God. Everything not God. You have God and not God. You have that you know, line the theologians sometimes want to draw. Everything under the line is not God. Everything above the line is all that is in God is God. Creation is of another order of being from divine being. Here's a, an Anglican from the 20th century, He's, uh, Mascal. He says, God is outside and above the order of the universe and is radically different in status from all the beings that compose it. So created being is brought into existence by God and divine being 
uh, in the language of Augustine, just is. You know, Augustine, and it's not Augustine, that's in Florida. Um, Augustine commenting on, um, I think it was John 10, I and the Father are one, and probably Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. He says, is, is. Isness, you know. There are two orders of being, created being and non-created, or divine being. The former, the created, is finite. It has bounds or limits according to its created capacities. And the latter, divine being, God, is infinite, having no bounds or limits according to its uncreated essence, and is thus incomprehensible to the creature. The former is temporal, it began to be with time and exists in relation to it. The latter, eternal, everlasting, without beginning or end, and apart from all succession and change, quoting Richard Muller. The former, creatures, creation, is dependent. The latter, independent. In no sense do we want to say God needs creation. Creation comes out of the absolute overflow of the divine benevolence and goodness. Creatures are contingent, God is not. Um, John of Damascus said, all things are distant from God by nature, uh, by their wetness, by their quiddity. I don't know if two years ago I talked about my history with the word quiddity. I used to call it quiddity until I looked it up. It's not quiddity, it's quiddity. And you go, well, what does that mean? It means wetness, the wetness of a thing. Creation is a work of God, so effect, a product, bringing into being distinct, bringing being into being distinct from his own being, as Bobby says. The creator is of a different order of being from the creation, and we could put it this way, God is not like us. I think this distinction is very crucial to maintain this creator creature distinction, and I want to read some penetrating words by John Webster. The difference between creator and creature is infinite, not just very great. See why he would say that? Because very great is a a limiting concept. He says the difference between creator and creature is infinite, not just very great. Creator does not merely refer to the supreme causal power by which the world is explained. For God would then be simply a principle superior to the world or the biggest thing around. Kind of funny reading a a theologian, and he has this in quotes, the biggest thing around. God isn't the biggest thing around. Such conceptions falter by making God one term in a relation, and so only comparatively, not absolutely different. God, the creator, is not simply the most excellent of beings, because the distinction between uncreated and created being is not a distinction within created being, but one between orders of being. God is not one item in a totality, even the most eminently powerful item in the set of all things. That's the unquote. So, creation is an act of God bringing creatures into being utterly distinct from divine being. There is God, there is not God. 
Okay, so that's my definition of creation. What's creation? Everything other than God. We got that. Secondly, after defining it, I want to talk about the inception of creation. And if you have a copy of the, I don't know what hymnal is. You have the Trinity hymnal here? Okay, at the back. If you take, or you might have it on your phone. Go to chapter 4 of our confession. I want to work you through just the first paragraph. Chapter 4, paragraph 1. Just giving you an eight-point outline here, and I'm going to work my way through three of these in my lectures. Notice the language. Prepositional phrase, in the beginning. Sounds familiar, right? Genesis 1.1. So that's the inception of creation. Then we have the ground of creation. It pleased. I'm going to cover those two things in this lecture. Then we have the author of creation. Very interesting. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I say that's very interesting because chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity, you've got to bring chapter 2 with you when you go to chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. Okay, so chapter 4, very clear. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian creation. Then we have the goal of creation for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Then we have the essence of creation to create or make I think that those last two words are very important, but that's outside the scope of my task. It's scope, the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible. Yeah, this is how the older guys spoke. When they said uh, the world and all things therein, they meant creatures, all things created, all things produced, whether ex nihilo. By the way, was Adam created ex nihilo? Absolutely. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Right? That's immediate creation. Formed him from the ground. And then there's something, I think, ex nihilo, breathed in him the breath of life. So, so sometimes creation is things from things by God. Like Adam from the dirt. Eve from the side. Um, so then we have the duration in the space of six days and the nature of creation. They're all very good. So I want to look at two of these. The inception of creation in the beginning and the ground of creation. It pleased. So this initial prepositional phrase in Second London surely echoes the scriptural language of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if we were doing sentence diagramming of just that English translation there... The prepositional phrase would be subordinate to the verbal idea created, right? So the sentence on a diagram would actually start out with God created heaven's earth in the beginning. So it's a a very theocentric assertion right from the beginning. Here's Matthew Poole. Um, Matthew Poole's... um, mid-17th century commentator. In the beginning, to wit, of time and things. So now we know where Matthew Poole is on time. It's a creature. In the beginning, to wit, of time and things. Or the sense is this. The beginning of the world was thus. And this phrase further informeth us that the world and all things in it had a beginning and was not from eternity as some philosophers dreamed. The Genesis text then tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. I don't have time to show you, but I think that just means 
everything, whether visible or invisible, that ends up existing. It's a broad statement, inclusive of everything. And we can paraphrase uh, Genesis 1-1, something like this. In the beginning, all that is in God brought forth that which is not God. This entails that the entirety of what is external to God is contingent. Now, what I mean by that is it's not absolutely necessary. It does not have to be. Creation does not have to be, and God would happily be God without it. But once he creates this contingent creation, then also is dependent upon God. Creation, or not God, not only depends on God to be, it depends on God to be different. Okay? Existence, it depends upon God, and sustaining a creation, conservation. It all, it all depends on God. We're not deists. When God makes, it's not like he winds the clock up and turns around. There is meticulous providence that occurs uh, with every pulsation of our hearts, by the way. Quoting somebody from the 19th century. forgot who that was. So the beginning here refers to that external work of the eternal God who remains as such, affecting the creation of all things, inclusive of time and space. You know, what is time? It's, it's a weird thing to think about time. You say, well, it's 122. In the real world, it's actually 1122. <laughs> um, time is the measure of creaturely change, borrowing it from somebody, probably James Dolezal or something like that. Time, time, Ames says, coexists with all created things, as appears in the phrase, in the beginning, for that was the beginning of time. I think it was Augustine that might have first put it this way. Um, creatures occurred with time, were created with time. It's concreation. With creation comes time and space. Here's... Think Ames. Yes, Ames again. Place also coexists with things. But time and place are not, strictly speaking, created, but are concreated or connected with created things. Isn't it? It's, it's like mind-boggling to think of no time and no space. No, no physically extending limbs like we have. Both time and space, we have to confess, and Ames does this, are created with other created things. And this should be obvious to us, since both time and space are finite, they're limited, they're measurable. God is neither of those. God, not God. Okay, Keep remembering that. This means that time as well as space is creature. By the way, when I say creature, I don't just mean creepy crawlers or bugs or alligators or people sometimes. Uh, I, I'm, sometimes when I use the word creature, I mean everything not God. Time, space, and the world and all things therein are creatures. God is creator of all. I want to deal now with the ground or basis of creation reflected in our creation, in our confession. Two words, it pleased. In the beginning... It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the words, it pleased God, in 4.1, 
B, refer to divine willing or the decree of God. Ephesians 1.11, for instance, God works all things after the counsel of his will. His will is the blueprint for his work. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So creation is due to the will of God. It pleased God. It is not, creation that is, is not necessary to the divine essence. Is creation necessary? I remember having this private conversation with a bunch of guys, and one guy says, yeah, God decreed it, so it's necessary. But it's contingent upon his willing. So it's not absolutely necessary. Is it contingently necessary? Is that what they say? Yeah. Uh, And you can read Muller's Dictionary on that. By the way, you should have a copy of Muller's Dictionary with you. Second edition. And keep it open. We can go there if we need to. So God is God the Trinity, because it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of His own glory to make or create. God is God the Trinity without creatures and in no absolute sense or necessary to the divine, to the divine nature as such must make creatures. You don't have to be, but you are. And if you think about that, not only are you, but you aren't what you were when you first came into being. God has sustained every pulsation of your heart, John Eady, ever since you were giving a pulsing heart. Every pulsation of the heart is sustained by the divine goodness, by the execution of divine power terminating on our bodies. It should, I think, astound us that not only are we, but we are what we are now. Especially if you think, look to the law of God and your own heart. Creation, then, is entirely gratuitous, and this fact ought to enhance our worship as we contemplate it. To be, isness, is of the essence of God, or necessary to God, but not everything not God. Creatures do not necessarily exist. Their existence is contingent. God willed to create. God willed to bring into contingent existence that which did not exist necessarily, which is everything other than God. Creation did not appear due to absolute divine necessity. In other words, there is nothing in God that makes creation absolutely necessary. It's a contingent thing upon his willing. Now, of course, the big question is, why did he will it? It, it, Here's the theologian. Is this a safe answer? Because he did. Here's that uh, Anglican again, Mascal. 
The, uh, the book, by the way, is He Who Is. I highly recommend it for, for the pastors. No answer other than the freedom of the divine will can be given either to the question why God should create a world at all or to the question why, if he does create one, it should be this one rather than any other. See what he does? It's just, it's the divine will. That's what he's told us, and that's where we need to stop. The creation, then, is predicated upon the divine pleasure or will to create as, I think, mysterious as that is to us. It's like, I can't get my head and hands around that totally. Now, some people have argued, and I think rightly so, that creation is fitting to the divine essence. It is kind of fitting for God to go outside of himself. I'll let you just explain what that means. But it's not absolutely necessary to the divine essence. Creation, we must affirm, is utterly gratuitous and mysterious. I got another quote from Mascal. And I think what he does here is wonderful. He captures the gratuitous, mysterious, and wondrous work of creation. Here's what he says. Once, however, we have been led to affirm God's existence. Our whole perspective changes, and we see that it is not God's existence that requires explanation, but the existence of anything else. The real miracle is not that God exists. I love this line but that the world does. God, the self-existent, perfect, changeless being, the pure act in whom all that supremely is, is composed, comprised, excuse me, how could he not exist? The self-existent cannot but be, but that he in whom nothing is lacking should confer existence on us, that is the wonder which may well stagger our minds. This, this older guy from last century is getting at the nuts and the heart, the kernel, the essence of what Christians historically have meant by creation ex nihilo. There was not, there's no um, material cause of creation. There's no matter that was there and God takes it and, you know, voila, we got what we have. There's God and nothing else. Then there's the heavens and the earth and everything that, you know, has come into being. It ought to produce great wonder and awe in us. That's why I had them read Psalm uh, 33. I think I'm going to read that at the end of this lecture as well. It ought to produce great wonder and awe when we contemplate the fact that creation is unnecessary to God. Now, I have another quote. I brought a lot of quotes with me. This one is by John Webster. Some of you have heard of John Webster. I highly recommend for the pastors, volume one, God, what is the name of the book? God Without Measure, volume one. I bought it when it was a hardback. It was $125, but I think you can get it for $30 or $40 a paperback now. Some of the chapters in there, I've read them, I don't know, five, six times. But before I read this, I think it's an eloquent and soul-stirring statement by Webster. 
We have to remember that theology, contemplating God's revelation in both nature and scripture, and that's what we're trying to do, is an intellectual act. It's a creaturely reflection upon God's revelation, and the goal of which is worship, right? I don't think, Chuck, once you go away here, only intellectually or having a cranial stuff session, you know, where we stuff stuff in your heads and it doesn't percolate into your life. Uh, We want to worship God in light of what he has revealed about himself. And an accurate intellectual contemplation upon that should produce that in us. We're attempting to grasp what God has revealed to us, which is a great privilege, and creaturely theology's goal is communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and all its entailments. So here's, here's Webster. I just tried to set it up. So this better be good because I set it up as if it were good, right? God requires nothing other than himself. Um, do you consider Stefan like a mentor in your life? Okay. He's like a mentor in my life, too. So I remember years ago, Steph and I were either texting or talking, Dr. Lindblad, who teaches for IRBS. I was talking about, I think, the chapter that this comes from. I think it's called Trinity and Creation. He borrowed that title from me, by the way. Or maybe I borrowed it from him. I don't know. But he said, you know what? Some of the topic statements in Webster's uh, paragraphs could be full chapters in and of themselves. And this is one of them. God requires nothing other than himself. Yet his unoriginate love also originates. Why this should be so, we are incapable of telling. For though with much consternation we can begin to grasp that it is fitting that God should so act, created intelligence remains stunned by the fact that God has indeed done so. What stuns us, what our intelligence can't get behind or reduce any further, is the outward movement of God's love. God's love under its special aspect of absolute creativity. God's creative love is not the recognition, alteration, or ennoblement of an antecedent object beside itself, but the bringing of an object into being, ex nihilo generosity by which life is given by divine love, the infinite distance which cannot be crossed, crossed, the distance between being and nothing has been crossed. If you were in my study when I first read this, you would hear me yelling like hallelujah and probably turning some songs on and singing the Gloria Patri and the, and the, and the doxology. The infinite, the infinite, let me say that again. The distance between being and nothing has been crossed. The love of God, therefore, has its term primarily in itself, but secondarily in the existence of of what is other than God, determined by that love for fellowship with him. Creation is, again, not necessary for God. God's creative love is not a love which is needy and in want, and so loves in such a way that it is subjected to the things it loves, 
God loves out of God loves not out of compulsion of his needs, but out of the abundance of his generosity. That was a long quote. If I say this now, creation were necessary to the divine essence, what would it be? God. If creation were necessary for the divine essence, it would be the divine essence. For that which is necessary to the divine essence is necessary for the divine to be. God does not have to create in order to be God or in order to be enhanced by that which he created. You ever heard that before? Creation doesn't enhance God. Creation doesn't like give to God something he didn't have. He doesn't go, man, I thought I was good before, but now that I've created, I'm better than I was. We can't think that way of God. We ought not to think that way of God. And I think the scripture keeps us from that when we think through it carefully. God is not enhanced by that which he created. But here's the thing. He still created. And when he does that, it reflects who he is. Now, I want to read that psalm again, Psalm 33, 6 through 9. Hear those words. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Now watch what happens. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke... And it was done. Uh, He commanded, and it stood fast. Surely, reverberations from the Genesis account are coming through the psalmist's mind and soul. He spoke, and it was done. You see, even when Scripture says, he spoke, you ever wondered, like, what language did he speak when he spoke? He commanded. I've heard commands first from my parents and then from teachers and coaches and then you know, from other people, and it was always an audible voice that I could determine with my ears. These sound waves were communicating thoughts through verbal symbols. What language did God speak? You know, I actually saw a discussion someplace where somebody surmised, I think it was Hebrew. You're going to deal with this, right? What divine speaking means. Do you think it was an audible voice? Don't say yes, because there's no... Therefore, either God has lungs, a throat, vocal cords, teeth, tongue, lips, brings in air, pushes it out, sound waves, all that stuff. Or it has to mean something else, right? I mean, he could create a, an audible sound to reveal something, but I don't think that's what that means. It. I think this is just good old-fashioned using 
human language in its limited capacities to depict the unspeakable act of creation ex nihilo. Nothing and then something other than God. Why? It pleased God. He determined to do this. He willed to do this. Did he have to do this? No. Did he do it? Yes. Not only did he do it, but as we know, if we keep reading after Genesis 1, Genesis 2 happens and then Genesis 3. So not long after, according to our confession, I think they're right, after their creation, our first parents sinned. They didn't have to exist in the first place. Now they're in this condemned state of fallenness. And I've said this before to my people. You should be glad I am not God. Okay? Because you wouldn't be here. Here's this very good creation. Uh, God made man upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29. But we've all sought out our devices, our evil ways. God made man morally upright. You don't take that as physically upright, do you? Okay. I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, God made man, let's take it physically upright, you know, Ecclesiastes 7.29. But we have all sought our devices. So God made Adam standing up, and we have all sought out schemes to what? Sit down, kneel down, lay down? I don't think that's what it means. The contrast there, I think, depicts... God made man morally upright, man, in the language of Thomas Boston, man unmade man. God made man morally upright, man man ruined man. And then if you extend that fall into sin and then natural generation, we come in speaking lies from out of the womb and sin, my mother conceived me. And then now, 2023, billions of people on the earth. How much sin... How many violations of the law of God have happened in the last three seconds all throughout the world? How much damning guilt was accrued in the last two seconds all across the world? Uh, some people are, are enjoying nice weather. We're not. Uh, but a lot of people around the earth are, but they don't have thanks in their hearts. They don't seek God. They don't honor him. All around the world, every moment that we breathe, there are people that are clenching their fist against the one who caused them to be and who has sustained them in their being. And many of those deserve to be in hell a long time ago. And yet they're enjoying all these creature comforts. Over and over and over again, every moment in which we breathe, there are sinners who deserve divine justice, who are actually experiencing divine patience, unlike any patience we might have ever exhibited. It's astounding to think of that. We know from Genesis 3.15, God promised to send a, a, a seed of the woman, a woman, um, a man who had come from a woman without a man. I think that's what the promise is there in Genesis 3.15. You can hear the prophets later pick that theme up. I think they got it from way back from that mother promise that a, that a man would come from a woman without a man to deal the death blow to the devil's head. And we continue in the scriptural uh, portrait of the, this skull-crushing seed of the woman, and those promises all terminate in the fullness of time. God 
That's a pretty big text, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, uh, born of a woman, he assumed our nature, born under the law, he assumed our duties. In order that he might redeem, he assumed our liabilities. For what purpose? Hebrews 2.10, to bring us to God, bring many sons to glory. The, the, the God who created is the same God of redemption. This is... You know, creation is a staggering thing, but when you think about the fall into sin and your own heart and your own life and look around you, um, it should astound us that we have a conference here without divine wrath terminating on our heads. And why is that? Because the ex nihilo creator God has plans for not just the initial creation. He has, an, he has plans for a new creation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who was the first sinner? Adam. What did he fall short of? Whatever glory means. So it had to be something that he didn't, wasn't endowed with by creation, but could have arrived at whatever that glory meant. I think it means a state of human existence. Uh, better than the beginning, pun intended. He didn't get there. But then you, you keep reading the scriptural narrative, you go, but there's this other figure in the New Testament called Last Adam. By the way, if there's no Last Adam, we're done. There's a Last Adam. So I think as well, when we think about creation, we can't think about it rightly unless we say, fall into sin, distortion, mangled souls, messed up, and divine solution in the person and work of the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be be very sad if we did a conference on creation without preaching the gospel. Don't do it. I already did it, so you can be a a moralizer. Because creation itself, it's good news, but it's not the whole picture, right? God made man upright, man unmade himself. God is remaking man. By the way, God is not only remaking man, right? What do we wait for as believers? New heavens, new earth in which dwells righteousness. You can see some of this in Colossians Oh, look at that. I got 13 minutes. You can see some of this Colossians in Colossians 1. Fab, fascinating text. It's probably one of your favorites. It's one of mine. In whom we have redemption. That is the son of his love. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, by the way, let's go back to verse 12. New, New King James is the version I'm reading here. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who delivered us from the power or domain of darkness and transferred or conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. There's a motif from the Old Testament I'm convinced Paul's using to describe Christian salvation this side of the sufferings and glory of our Savior. It's the motif of the Exodus there. You can read G.K. Bill's commentary on that. In whom we have redemption. Hey, Exodus. Through his blood, Exodus. The forgiveness of sins. Who is 
the image of the invisible God, this is the Son of the Father's love, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, language of the confession, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him, and here it is, look at this preposition, for Him. That's an interesting Pauline trilogy of prepositional phrases. Paul has a lot of triads of prepositional phrases, by the way. You ever wonder why? You don't have to think too hard about that one. But for him, here is this sun-tilted aspect of creation. Creation was somehow, some way, sun-tilted from the beginning. He's before all things, and in him all things consist Okay, so that's all first creation stuff. So whatever this ex nihilo product is and all the entailments of it, whether uh, immediate creation, creation out of nothing, or immediate creation, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and formed Eve from the rib of the side of Adam, all of that, the son of his love, not as incarnate, The, the incarnate Son created, but He created according to His divine nature, not His human nature, right? By the way, is the human nature of our Lord created? If it isn't, we're toast. He became man for us and for our salvation. He, it's creature. But here we have the first creation is what Paul's talking about there, right? So the, we have to have in our theology, this Trinitarian theology of creation, a space for the Son being the divine agent, at least co-agent, of creation, right? Father, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But watch what Paul does here. Not only is he the head of the first creation, and he is head he is the head of the body, the church. So this is new creation language, right? I think it would be wrong if we're going to be biblical in our expression, our sermons and lectures on creation, to not mention new creation at some point. So that's why I'm doing this. The one who, in the first creation, it was by him, it was through him, and it was for him is also the head of the church, uh, the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And as you know, uh, Paul goes on uh, and on there. It's interesting when you read Paul sometimes, like that text, you might conclude, son effected creation alone. The Father appointed the Son as a subordinate agent to carry out His will. And the Son creates as the deputy of the Father. I'm, I'm sure I'm qu qu quoting somebody. I don't believe that. We shouldn't believe that. That's not right. I think it was Gill said something like that. The Son is not an appointed delegate of the Father who becomes the agent of creation. The agent of creation is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are texts in both Testaments where creation seems to be appropriated to one person, like here. 
John 1, 3, nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from him. Who's the him there? It's the word. Do we conclude? Therefore, the Father did not execute divine power in the creation of all things. He gave his son, he put the deputy's Barney Fife deputy badge on his chest, and he said, you do the work of creation. By the way, there's a contemporary theologian who says we see uh, the humility of the Father by selecting the Son and Spirit to do unique works separate from his own works during the economy of both creation and redemption. I'm too old to do this, but I'll do it anyway. Or that, you know, that little barf thing. It's like, the first time I read that, I go, why in the world would this publisher do that? The publisher that published that book doesn't publish that book anymore. And the same publisher has a book on the book table out there on the Trinity where he mentions some of that stuff in that book and says, happily, the publisher doesn't publish the book anymore. I wondered when I read that in Scott Swain's book, published by Crossway, where he says Crossway no longer publishes that book, if the editors caught that or not, because that's kind of an awkward thing to say in your book, right? So when we read Colossians 1, uh, we don't read this as the son was deputized by the father to do a separate operation from the father, as if the Father is witnessing the Son creating everything for himself. It's just what the theologians call appropriation. That is, a divine act of the triune God is appropriated to one person here. Elsewhere, it's appropriated to the Father. Elsewhere, it's appropriated to the Spirit. But that doesn't discount the inseparable operation of the triune God in the thing produced. Okay, It's just... God's way of trying to tell us he's triune. It's, it's hard to do that because it's a great mystery, but it's a revealed mystery, and we have to think through it. So here we have Christ, the son uh, of the Father's love. We have uh, the language of Exodus going on here. This is the redemption of, of Christ that was prefigured in the Old Testament through various divine acts through is in Israel's history, all looking forward to a greater divine act in the incarnation, sufferings and glory of Christ. And what is he going to do? He's going to make all things new. His creation is going to be brought back to that terminus toward which, uh, to which it was originally made. It was made to become glorified. Uh, it wasn't because somebody who was put in charge of the mission sinned and fell short of the glory of God. The first sinner is Adam. He fell short of the glory of God, a state or condition of human nature better than the created state. The last Adam does not fail his task. But it's very interesting, the last Adam, who, by the way, he suffered and then he did what? Entered his glory, right? And Jesus and Peter and Paul, at least, more than once, say this sufferings and glory, third day resurrection, is actually in the prophets of the Old Testament. This glory that the mediator uh, enters into is going to spill over onto the, all the mediator's sons so that what God does to the mediator in terms of resurrection and glory according to his human nature, God is going to do it to us. But there's something else because even the creation moans and groans, right, for the full adoption, full redemption uh, of the sons of God, Romans 8. So the creation kind of, we should look at it like it's stretching out its neck and there's protruding veins waiting for the 
glory train, as one of my friends puts it, to come around the corner because they know when the, when the glorification of the sons of God occurs at the last day resurrection, this transformation of this old creation occurs. And um, eye has not seen, neither ear heard, all that the Lord has in store for those who love him. So even though chapter 4 in itself doesn't discuss new creation, chapter 4 is in the context of 32 chapters, isn't it? And we should read the confession sideways, as our esteemed president teaches us. And I just tried to do that a little. Well, after the break, we'll deal with um, the um, goal of creation, the manifestation of the glory of God.